Lord, we thank you for this morning. Um, We thank you that we're here to hear your word, and I pray that our hearts would be ready to receive it, and that we would be teachable. We pray for Pastor Bill, Lord, that you would heal his body. Your healing hand would be upon it. Uh, And Lord, uh, he would be healthy and ready to go to Cambodia this next week. And for the others who are going to Cambodia, that we would uh, stay healthy as well and uh, have a ready spirit to do your will there. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So... My daughter told me a joke this morning that she'd like me to share with you. It is, why should you never tell secrets in a garden? It is because the corn have ears, the potatoes have eyes, and the bean stalks. Okay. So this morning, we're going through the book of Obadiah. So if you'd like to open your Bibles to Obadiah. Obadiah, in the Hebrew, means worshiper of Yahweh or servant of Yahweh. There are actually 13 people named Obadiah in the Old Testament. Uh, One of these may have been the one who wrote the book. We don't know for sure. We don't know exactly who he is since we don't have that much information on him. Um, It could be he was just a regular guy. It could be that he was one of the priests or a shepherd like some of the other prophets were. We really don't know, but we do know he had a heart to do God's will because he did write this book. And it is also a hard book to write. Uh, He evidently had the heart of Isaiah, which is, here I am, use me. Now, Obadiah is a unique prophecy in that it doesn't deal directly with Judah or Israel that much at all. It actually focuses on the country of Edom and the judgment coming upon them. So let me give you a brief history of Edom or the Edomites. The Edomites were a people descended from Esau. Esau was the son of Isaac and Rebekah, and he was the brother of Jacob. Uh, In the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 25, he was nicknamed Edom, which means red, probably because he had red hair. Esau eventually settled in an area called Mount Seir, and he absorbed another people there called the Horites. Now, when Israel came out of Egypt, they actually wanted to pass through the land of the Edomites. The Edomites, however, said, no, you can't pass through here. And they didn't allow them. So God said, you know what? They're your brothers. Leave them alone. We're going to come another way. So that's what happened. They went a different way. Now, the Edomites actually opposed King Saul, and they were actually conquered under David and Solomon. They were in subjection at that point. In the days of King Jehoshaphat of Judah, Edom actually joined an alliance with the countries Moab and Ammon to attack Judah, But God was with Judah, and he actually defeated them. The Edomites did successfully rebel against King Jehoram of Judah. Uh, Another king of Judah brought them back under subjugation. And they attacked again in the days of another king named Ahaz. Now we're going to skip ahead now several centuries. King Herod, which you've all heard of, the Herod who, Herod the Great, tried to destroy all the babies in Bethlehem. He was an Edomite. They actually called it Edomian. Now, the last we hear of the Edomites is they fought side by side with the Jews in the rebellion against Rome in 66 to 70 AD. And as we know, they were crushed by Rome 
And Edom itself was never heard from again as a people. They were essentially wiped from history. Now, the time of Obadiah is difficult to determine, but it looks like from different markers in the book, which I'm not going to get detailed into, that it was during the time of Elisha, or soon after that, which would make him one of the earliest prophets, if not the earliest. It would put it around 848 to 841 B.C. Uh, Obadiah can be foot can be put in the following outline. Uh, verses 1 through 9, we're going to see a predictions of judgment on them. Verses 10 through 14 would be reasons for judgment on them. 15 through 18 would be results of judgment. And 19 through 21 would be Israel is going to possess or be overpowering Edom. And it is one chapter. It is one of the few one-chapter books in the Bible. It is also the only or one of the only Old Testament books not quoted in the New Testament. So with that background, let's start. Verses 1 through 4. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us rise up for battle against her. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. And again, he's speaking to Edom here, not Israel. It does sound like Israel. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Now, Edom is like Sodom in one sense, in that they had a big problem with pride. Edom, well, Sodom was very proud of their sin, about how liberal they were, about everything that they were able to do, from lying and stealing and adultery to homosexuality, everything. Everything about Edom, or I'm sorry, again, Sodom, they were prideful about what they were able to do. Edom, they, we actually have three reasons for Edom's pride in these four verses. The first one is position. The description given says, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. And it also says, though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars. This describes the location of Edom's capital city, which is what we would call Petra, or what they would call back then is Sela or Sela. It was a well-fortified city. It was considering considered virtually impregnable. It was surrounded by gorges and peaks that reached 5,700 feet high. To get to Petra, you had to go through a narrow canyon almost a mile long that's only wide enough for one horse and rider to pass through single file. And then you have to break out of this into a wider area when you get into Petra. Now, if you've ever seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, the canyon of the crescent moon that they describe where they go to find the Holy Grail, that's that canyon that you ride through at the end, that's Petra. That's how you get in. And I forget the name of the temple that they actually walk into there, but that's also actually there. They really videoed there. Now, they felt very secure because it's a hard, it was a hard place to get to. You could make, it was very easily defensible because only one person could come in and out at a time. And the Edomites would get on the ledges above where you had to get in, and they would throw rocks down on the enemy. I don't know if you've ever been hit by a large rock. When I was in junior high, I used to live in uh, Murphy Canyon Navy Housing. 
and there were these canyons there. And they actually used to do uh, artillery shelling there during World War II for practice. So they told us, don't go into the canyons. And I never listened. So I went into the I never saw artillery. But I went into the canyon. Well, there are these kids in the top. They're like, oh, they're in the canyon. They shouldn't be there. So they started hurling rocks down at us. And there was a rock about maybe this size. It was hurtled down, and it was headed for my head. So I stuck my hand up, and it actually whacked me in the hand. And it left this whole side of my hand bruised for several weeks. Now, I can't imagine there they're throwing a lot bigger rocks. You can imagine the impact that that would have. Now, Edom thought they had it made. Their position thought, how could anyone possibly conquer us? They were, a huge, they were not a huge nation compared to others, but because of their location, they thought, we're pretty indestructible. And whether it's in military strength or social rank or whatever the case may be, pride is always there frequently. Someone in position, in that kind of position, it can make them arrogant, not realizing where that came from. Now, during World War II, the Japanese were a very, they were like the Nazis of Asia. They thought themselves the superior Asian nation to the point where they had all these little atolls in uh, the Pacific that they had fortified. And one of them specifically I'm thinking about was named Tarawa. Now, the military general of Tarawa thought it would take a million Marines a hundred years to get through my defenses. It took several thousand Marines two days to get in there. Now, Japan was very prideful. This is our position. And they had a lot of islands that they thought were impregnable. Now, with no disrespect to any Marines who are in here, um, that can have the same effect on the Marines because the Marines really are the best of the best, and they know that, and so they can have a little bit of pride too. But focusing on Japan, their position was, we're impregnable, we've got this. America has this problem as well, and every time someone comes up against us, I admit in my mind going, are these people stupid? Do they know how awesome we really are? I mean, we, our military is diminishing under the current administration, but really, we're a force to be reckoned with. And uh, I remember when 9-11 happened, the college group at Horizon, all the guys were like, yeah, we're going to take them on. You know, we were very, very proud of our nation and its what it could accomplish. But really, anyone placed in power, in a position of power, needs to realize that they're placed there by God. It wasn't of their own doing. And the Thursday Night at Home Fellowship, we're going through Daniel. If you remember, Nebuchadnezzar thought, when he walked out on his balcony, look at everything I have accomplished. And before the words were out of his mouth, God said, paraphrasing, you've lost it, you're gone. And he basically lived as an animal for seven years. God places us in power. So wherever we are in position, it's because God has placed us there. Now, the second reason for their pride was knowledge. Edom was actually known for her wise men. And we see that in Jeremiah 49, 7, and Obadiah verse 8 also mentions this. The men of Edom were especially uh, known for their wisdom, especially the city called Timon. The phrase men of the East in the Old Testament a lot of times refers to men of Eden, Edom. Uh, passages like 1 Kings 4.30 declare the great wisdom of the men of the East. Uh, if you remember Job's friend, one of them was a Temanite. His name was Eliphaz. So they were known for their wisdom. Uh, many people today like to boast of what they know. Um, we make game shows about it to boast about how much we know. There was a 
I don't know how long it was on, but it was called The Beast. And the guy was from Great Britain, and he said, you know, you can't beat me. I know everything. And they had a commercial at one point saying, he was saying all these facts, and the point was, the more I know, and how great he was, how much he knew. Um, and really, our society, nobody likes to be trumped in knowledge. Everybody likes to see how much they can learn, how much they can know. They have a game on an application game called Trivia Crack, which I have played before. I don't play it anymore, but I, was, I like trivia games. That's how I was raised. And so it was always how much knowledge can we acquire. But we have all these games. Now, Geico plays on this. They have commercials that say, you know, you can save 15 minutes or more on car insurance. And they go, well, everybody knows that. Let me trump you in knowledge. Do you know the pyramids were an accident? Not that they were. And then they have all these commercials. Or, Did you know Pinocchio was a bad motivational speaker? Those kind of things. Everybody likes to be trumped in knowledge. Now, my wife, she got me some shirts because I would say I'm bold in my stance. She would say, you really think you know everything. And so let me show you what these shirts say. This one says, I'm not stubborn. My way's just better. This one says, it's okay if you don't agree with me. I can't force you to be right. So I can't really argue with her. I, I kind of agree in some sense. Uh, and I, I told her this morning, I was, looking at, I was looking at Pinterest. It's not just a girl thing. There are other things on there. I was looking at Pinterest, and this shirt came up. And it was a wife speaking to her husband. It said, I don't need Google. My husband knows everything. So I gave her that as a suggestion for the next shirt she could buy me. <clears throat> but anyway, when it boils down to it, wisdom and knowledge, they really don't mean a whole lot if you don't have love behind the actions that you do. And we get this in 1 Corinthians, uh, where it says man's wisdom is actually foolishness to God. So no matter how smart we think we are, God actually does know better. Uh, Paul also says that knowledge makes people prideful, but love edifies, love builds up. Love will always trump knowledge every time. Um, I've said this many times during Bible studies, is people won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Uh, Jesus always met people's needs while he gave them the gospel. And so we really need to do the same. But knowledge was the second reason for their pride. Now the third reason was present circumstances. In Edom's situation, they were boasting of their alliances. They had boasted... Um, in these confederacies with different nations. And they thought their alliances had made them strong. Because remember, they were a small nation. They had a good fortified city. But they thought, oh, fortified city, plus we got these alliances. There's really no way anybody's going to take us out. And so they were really proud in their political alliances. Now, we can be proud in our political alliances, maybe as a country, or maybe who we're associated with politically, or even in social rank. Um, I remember one time, we can even... Let me put it this way. There was a time when, I think I was just out of high school, I don't remember exactly when it was, but we get a sense of pride like, oh, I've met so-and-so. Uh, my mother-in-law had actually met Michael Jackson a long time ago, like in the early 80s, and she doesn't make a big deal of it. I bring that up just because. But I went to a DC Talk concert when I was, I think, a little bit out of high school, and Audio Adrenaline was playing for them before that. So me and one of my friends thought, Hey, you know what? 
let's go to, we found these fake security badges. So we took these fake security badges. I know, I'm a really bad example. Um, and we went to the door where the band enters. So we thought, you know, we'll stand there like we're security, and we know we'll get in the door, we'll get to talk to them, we'll get autographs or whatever. So we did that. And I, we didn't get signatures from anybody in DC Talk, but almost all the band members of Audio Adrenaline we got a signature for. So I was like, oh, this is cool. Now, the concert was pretty much over when we had decided to do this. And we were late in getting back to the van, meeting up with others. And we weren't just a little late. We were a couple hours late. And so the youth leader, who was a good friend of mine at the time, when we walked back, he was not very happy. Um, and he was right to that. But uh, I had gone thinking, oh, I'm going to get all these autographs. I'm going to, like, people are going to look, oh, look, Eric's got this stuff. He's got, you know, the, the names of those people signed. And after I got rightfully chewed out, I was like, you know what, this really wasn't worth it. And I was like, I'm just going to throw it away. And I tossed it, and my sister actually has it somewhere. She grabbed it. She was there. But we get this present circumstance where, ooh, I'm affiliated with this, or ooh, I've got this, I've, got the, I've met so-and-so, I've met whoever. Uh, there's a lot of people in my extended family who've met, who live in Anaheim, so they're close to Hollywood sometimes, so they've met some of the bigger names. Um, but we can get that kind of arrogance from that. So, anyway... Present circumstances. Now, pride can be just as much a problem for those in high political rankings or those who are low, prince, princes and paupers. It just really takes the attitude. So there's three reasons why they were prideful. Now, there's a difference between good, by, good pride and bad pride. And here's a simple way I want to distinguish it. The bad pride is the sinful pride refusing to recognize God's sovereign role in everything. So Edom didn't recognize God had put them where they are. He didn't recognize he had allowed them to have those alliances. He didn't recognize he had allowed them to have the wisdom that they had. They didn't recognize his role at all. The good pride is recognizing that apart from God, you can really do nothing. And therefore, you give God the glory for the things that you accomplish. That's really the best uh, distinguishing attribute. Who do we give glory to? And again, Edom didn't recognize those things. Satan is someone else who we get an example of. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, they refer to Satan symbol symbolically. And his pride can be seen as follows. Despite the fact that God created Satan, Despite the fact that it was God who gave Satan the power and beauty he possessed, Satan wanted all that glory and credit for himself. He didn't want to worship God in response to the gifts that God had given him. He wanted to be worshipped himself. Satan viewed himself as glorious instead of what he actually was, and that was a reflection of God's glory. And in a similar way, you know, we've been given all these gifts from God. And when we exercise them, we can think, yeah, I did that. Maybe we have a gift of, of helps, and maybe we help all the time and we look at other people and go, oh, they're not doing anything, but God, look what I'm doing. And look how long I've been doing it. When really what we should be doing is, God, I'm doing this 
because you've given me the opportunity to do it. And really, we're, with the proper attitude in those actions, we are reflecting God's glory to others. So sinful pride is not recognizing that only God is worthy of worship because he is only, God is only able to accomplish things entirely of himself. Now, God also says in James 4 that he really can't use us when we are prideful. It says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. The Corinthian church, and there's a lot of examples of pride in scripture because as humans we really think highly of ourselves. Corinthian church had a big problem with pride in this. They thought, in chapter 1 it says this, well, I'm of Apollos. Well, I'm of Paul's clique. Well, I'm of Peter's clique. Oh, well, I'm from Jesus Christ's clique, so I trump you all. And they had this idea. Peter, they'd say, well, like, well, Peter was one of the inner circle of Jesus. Oh, yeah, well, Paul was educated. Peter was just a dumb fisherman. And someone else might say, well, I'm of Jesus' clique because, you know, he was actually the son of God. So they had this puffed-up state of, I'm of so-and-so, or I'm of this person. And Paul actually addresses their heart issue in 4.7 of Corinthians. He says this, What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Everything we have, we have received from God. Therefore, we should not act as if we have accomplished anything on our own. It is not wrong to feel good about something you have accomplished as long as you recognize and admit that you could have accomplished, not have accomplished it apart from God. Okay, I added some commentary in there with this. But here's the three points he makes. What makes you different from somebody else? Is there any difference between any of us? Not really, because if there is, it's because God has made those differences. So there's no reason for pride there. What do we have that we did not receive? Nothing. Everything we have, we've received from God. We've received our measure of faith from God. We've received food, clothing, shelter, everything we have. Even the faith that we place in God, we've received from God. The ability to repent of our sins has been given to us by God. So we really have no reason for pride. The third thing, he says, why do you glory as if you had not received it? What he's saying is if what you have... What you actually have spiritually is a gift from God. Why do you glory as if it were your own accomplishment? And that's what we do. Like the example I gave earlier. Oh, I've done this, and look what I've done for you, God. So there's no reason for self-glorifying pride. So these three questions should prompt other questions in our heart. They are, do I truly give God the credit for my salvation? Do I live with a spirit of humble gratitude? And seeing what God has given me. What can I give to him? Those are kind of ways for us to try to avoid the pride that can so easily pop up, is ask ask ourselves those questions. Now, the result of Edom's pride. In verse 4, Edom says, Who will bring me down to the ground? And God answers, I will bring you down. When I was in the youth group, I was in a play. And it was a goofy play. It was called How Satan Almost Stole Christmas or something to that effect. And I played Satan, because everybody thought I fit the role best. And my line in the, my, I think my final line in the movie was, what can you do now, O great one? I have won this battle. I have stolen this Christmas. But it was a direct rebellion against God, and I remember I had to shake my fist up at the sky and look at 
imagining what I saw God. But that's the attitude that Edom had here. What are you really going to do now? No one's going to bring me down. And God said, no, no, I'm going to bring you down. And that's how we're going to see them right now. Verses 5 through 9, or verses 5 through 6 to start. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. What he's saying here is the judgment upon Edom is going to be much worse than what happens when someone robs your house. Because usually when someone comes into your house and robs, they take what they can carry out. And that's all they're going to get. But he's saying, you know what, you're not even going to get that. You're going to be completely demolished. You're going to be completely wiped out. You're going to be completely cut off. It's going to be very, it's going to be very thorough. And Edom's rose red city, which is what Petra was called, is called the rose red city, would be taken and thoroughly plundered. God was going to bring their pride and position to nothing. Verse 7. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Edom's allies, or the men in their confederacy, her neighbors, the men who are at peace with her, and those who benefited from her prosperity, where it says those who eat your bread, they're all going to lay a trap for Edom. Edom was going to be double-crossed by the very allies she relied upon. So God brought their pride and circumstance to nothing. Verses 8 and 9. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Timon, Timon, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. Once God destroys the wise men from Edom, the soldiers themselves are going to actually lose heart. God is going to bring their pride of knowledge or their wisdom to nothing. And as I said, I think pride is a big issue for all of us. And it can be destructive in many ways. Pride can inhibit our spiritual growth just like any other sin and has to be repented of uh, so we can move forward. And it, and it can start out small. It doesn't even have to be a big thing. I mean, you can be prideful of something really small, and that pride can grow. My, I'm not a handyman in any real sense of the word. Um, our washing machine had broke down several months ago. And I, was, I had cleaned everything out, and I was looking, and I was like, ah, there's nothing wrong with it. And I don't know what's wrong with it. But luckily, my father-in-law pretty much knows everything there is to know about fixing anything around the house. So he came in, and he pretty much had an idea of what it was in about five minutes. So he flips it on its side, pulls open the pump, and a small child's sock had gotten sucked in and plugged the washer. Now that small child's sock can be like pride. Just a small bit of pride can plug up any progress we can make in our spiritual growth. And we want to make sure that none of those things come up. And that's why those questions I said earlier, we need to ask ourselves about, and I'll mention those again later. And it can destroy marriages because husbands and wives don't want to admit either, either of them are wrong. Um, you can ask my wife. Um, 
I have told her many times, I said, if I'm wrong, there's only one way to get me to see that, and that is to pray very hard and to use scripture because I will definitely submit to scripture. I don't submit to any ideas about what people think, though, if it's not useful in scripture. And she has used that before. But it can go both ways. And for husbands, you should read Ephesians 5. And for wives, you should read 1 Peter 3. And that really talks about being humble and submitting to one another in the proper sense. It can destroy friendships. Pride can. Um... And I've lost several friends this way. And it can destroy our witness. A lot of people have the idea that Christians are just know-it-alls. Well, you guys know everything. And I've had this problem before. I was, when I was in the bakery at Costco, I was talking to somebody, and she was asking all these questions, and I would come up with answers for her. She says, well, you just think you know everything. I said, I don't know everything. She says, well, you have an answer for everything. I said, no, just an every, answer for everything you've asked so far. And... You know, and I enjoy the dialogue probably a little bit too much when people ask me questions, so it probably appears that I'm arrogant, but I'm really not about that. I really want people to get saved, so I try to study and find answers for things. But I have to be careful uh, when I talk to people because I don't want to appear so arrogant that they're like, well, I don't want to be like him. And so we just got to be careful that our love for people outweighs any knowledge that we might obtain. Because, again, knowledge brings pride. Part two, so verses 10 through 14 is the problems that Edom had. The f- uh, Violence against your brother. I didn't read the verse. Verse 10, for violence against your brother Jacob, shall, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So the family lines of both Israel and Edom go back to Isaac, who is their common ancestor, their father. Esau was the brother of Jacob, and this made Edom's sin against Israel really all the worse. Because, you know, someone close to you or who should be close to you, like a family member or a close friend, you always feel more betrayed than when it's just some acquaintance, someone who's not as close to you. And some sins really seem worse to us depending on who we sin against and who we treat badly. But if it's a brother or a sister, especially a brother or sister in Christ who offends us purposely, it's really, it's really worse. And if it's a husband or wife who doesn't know how to control their tongues, that can be made even worse because really that's the closest relationship you should have on earth other than Christ. It says in Galatians 6.10, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we really, their first sin, violence against the brother. And we should really be careful about that same thing within the body of Christ and within our own families. Verse 11. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you, Edom, were as one of them. This is their second problem. What they should have done, they didn't do. And this is called the sin of omission. And there are two types of sins mentioned in Scripture. The sin of commission, which is the actual act of committing a sin, and the sin of omission, which is doing nothing when you know that you should. Now, Edom's sin of omission 
was Judah was being ravaged. And Edom, they just stood by and watched. They didn't help their brother. It says twice in verses 10 through 14 that they gazed while this was happening. Now, I don't, I never really watched Seinfeld, but I did watch the last episode. And I don't know if you guys have seen the last episode. But for some reason, their plane had got stopped in some city, and so they're waiting for the plane to get fixed. And they're on the street, and they saw this really fat guy getting mugged by somebody. And instead of helping the guy, they watched and they laughed at it. And a police officer ended up coming over to get them arrested. But they basically gazed while someone else was in trouble. And they didn't do anything about it. And this is what Edom did. Now, if you see someone who needs help instead of... Now, I'm not saying if you see two really big burly guys and you're 100 pounds that you should get in between them. But there's probably someone you can go and get or something you can try and do. But we should never gaze at the trouble that someone else is in and just do nothing. Because that is the sin of omission. The book of James emphasizes this point more when it says in 417, Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And, you know, this sin is just as prevalent today as it was then. Even with, with me, you know, how many times have we felt God tug on our heart or ask us to do something? We go, you know what, not today. And we, we turn away. But if there's a need God asks us to fill and we don't do it, we've committed the sin of omission. If we see someone in trouble, we just turn our head and go, you know what? I remember hearing a news story. It was someone running through, it was a woman running through the streets screaming for help, and I forget which neighborhood it was in. It was a long time ago. It was when I was in junior high. She was screaming for help, and no one in the neighborhood turned their light on. No one in the neighborhood came out to help her, and she was murdered that night. And that was, and, and that's just one instance. I know it's happened to other times because I've read about it many times. But if there's someone in help, if there's someone in need, we need to go out and find out what it is and help if possible. And I know that wives are paranoid of their husbands going to help people because they don't want them to get hurt. I know that I've heard something and felt like I need to go outside and check it out. My wife's like, don't go out there. And I said, just have the police on speed dial. I'll go out and check it out. We've had cops walk by on the sidewalk with guns before going to a house up the street. And we're like, huh. We'll let them handle this one. But if you see someone's in trouble, we need to make sure we're taking care of it. You know, in the Old Testament, there's 613 laws mentioned. There's 248 do's, 365 don'ts. So if there's 248 do's and we're not doing those, that's an act of omission. There's 365 don'ts and we do it, that's an act of commission. Now, the problem three is an act of commission on their part. God brings up their sins of commission in several ways. He says, you should not have four different times in three verses from verses 12 to 14. And he also says three times, nor should you have. So they've committed several offenses. So verses, verse 12. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. So their first sin of commission was they rejoiced in the destruction of others, something they shouldn't have done. And, you know, every, 
I have this problem because when I see someone get what they deserve, I'm really happy about it. Um, I remember when they found Saddam Hussein in that hole and they wanted to hang him and they hang him, they hung him. I was the first person I know on YouTube looking for a picture of that hanging or whatever video. And I was like, yeah, that guy deserves justice. And the same thing with Osama bin Laden. You know, everybody's on their edge of their seats waiting for him to get judged. And, you know, he did things wrong. Rightly should he be judged. But at the same time, God's not in heaven going, that's right, you're getting what you deserve, bin Laden. God's looking at, that's one more human that's lost. He's looking at one more destruction of the wicked. And he doesn't, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, according to Ezekiel 33. And if God doesn't take any pleasure in it, neither should we. And that is, trust me, I know a hard thing, because I, I have to battle with that back and forth sometimes. I hear something like that, and I'm like, yeah, and I'm like, oh, no way, I can't think that way. But that's what we have to keep in mind. Now, their second sin of commission was they were proud in the fact they had an attitude, that is never going to happen to me. They saw what was happening to Judah, and they thought, that's never going to happen to me because look where I am. And they did worse than rejoice. They did worse than nothing. They rejoiced over the, another's misfortune and suffering. And when we never, we should never say never. And ironically, the first time I ever heard that was on the movie An American Tale. They said, never say never, whatever you do. And I have said that. And I've told, I may have even said it up here in the past, but I've told many of you before when I worked at at Costco, I said, you know what, I'm never going to work in a foods department. And I worked in the bakery as a supervisor. And I worked in the food court. I'm never going to be a gas station attendant, because you know how everybody says, oh, that's a lowly job. Well, I was a supervisor in the Costco gas station. Every time I said, I'm not going to do that. And then I said, I never want to go to the front end, which is where the registers are at Costco. They moved me to the front end. Every place I said, Lord, I don't want to do that. He said, yeah, you do. And he moved me to that position. And so I had to humbly go, okay, I will go here and I will learn what you want me to learn. But never say never. Never say that's going to happen to me. Never say, oh, it's too bad it happened to him. Instead, we ought to have the attitude of Titus 3.2. And it says this, show all humility to all men. In 2 Timothy, when he writes about the qualities of a servant of the Lord, humility is actually at the forefront of that when talking to others who may oppose us. So it's just not the right attitude for us to have. Now, verse 13. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Their third sin of commission was they took advantage. Now, it says they laid hands on the substance just like a mob would during a riot, during a natural disaster or another situation. I watched San Andreas, and sure enough, in every disaster movie, there's people who are taking advantage and breaking windows and stealing TVs. Um, but that's really what Edom was doing here. They saw what was happening, and they went in and figuratively stole Israel's TVs and whatever they, they could find there. But they took advantage. Verse 14. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. Their fourth sin of commission 
was they joined in the killing and they took Israel prisoner for the enemy. They joined in the killing of God's people. And Israel did do wrong. That's why they were being judged. But Edom should not have joined in the slaughter. It was not what they should have done. They should have assisted in, they should not have assisted in taking captives. And so Edom had this progression, this sin progression. First was a sin of omission. They did nothing. Then they rejoiced in Israel's distress and calamity. Then they took advantage of Israel's vulnerable state. And then they joined in the violence against God's people. And, you know, Edom was supposed to be Israel's brother. And we need to really make sure that... And, you know, these are big examples of what Edom did. But even small examples in our lives is why every action we take we need to analyze in the against the mirror of the scripture is what's the motive for what I'm doing? Am I doing the right thing? And there's not a verse for everything, but it's pretty close that you can get to the right decision reading scripture and measuring your life by it. That's why it's called the rule or the canon of scripture. You measure your life by. Now the results of their judgment, verse 15, for the day of the Lord upon all nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. So God says that basically the day of the Lord upon all nations is near. And the day of the Lord, as I've mentioned in the past, is always a picture of judgment. And while it represents the final judgment God is going to carry out, it also several times compares current judgments that, God's going to, that God brings on people to the future judgment. And this is one of them. And there is a sense in which God's judgment against Edom is actually a fulfillment of his promise to Abraham in Genesis 12.3. He says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. The Edomites, in all that they did, they cursed Israel in their sins of omission, in their sins of commission. But if we want to be blessed, we should bless the Jewish people. Now, I'm not going to say I agree 100% with how Israel does everything, but they are God's people. And in reality, wherever I stand, I'm going to stand with Israel because I want to be blessed. Verse 16. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. The picture of drinking here and many pictures of drinking in the Bible, especially in Revelation, it has to do with the drinking of the cup of judgment or God's wrath. When it says they will drink and swallow, it essentially represents that there is nothing they can do about it. Basically, their mouth is being forced open and the cup of judgment is being forced in. I don't know. I'm going to bring up Indiana Jones again. If you've seen Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, when his mouth is forced open to drink whatever poison they put in his mouth, that's the picture, forcing it in there. And it says, for as you drank on my holy mountain, or it could be better said in this way, as you made Judah drink, so you will drink and all the nations. So as they were making Judah drink a cup of judgment, God was going to do the same thing to them. Then it says, they shall be as though they had never been. Now, as I mentioned before, after 70 AD, the Edomites are never heard from again. And the Herods were the last prominent Edomites. And this has been fulfilled. There are no Edomites today. They do not exist. And yet Israel does remarkably exist as a distinct, unique nation for 4,000 years, 
around there? Verse 17. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So Edom was the fire that helped devour Israel. And in the future, the roles are going to be reversed. That's really all this is saying. And as I said, uh, 70 AD proves this to be correct. Um, You just won't meet an Edomite today. Now, verses 19 through the end of the chapter, verses or 19 through 20 right now. Israel will possess Edom. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowland shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess possess Gilead. And the captives of this host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. So Obadiah is looking forward to a coming day when Israel will occupy and possess the land that once belonged to Esau. And that's actually going to happen during the millennium. It's not going to happen now. But the modern borders of Israel do not encompass the ancient lands of Edom. In fact, they don't even possess anything close to what they should be. And at some point during the tribulation, many... Bible scholars and eschatologists believe that Petra, which was the capital city, as I said, is going to be the place where Israel flees from safety, for safety from the Antichrist. And there's actually a few verses, which I'll give you real quick, that people use that as support. And I will let you make the decision on that one. Uh, Daniel 11.41 is where we learn that Jordan will be one of the only places that elude the Antichrist control during the Great Tribulation. The second is in Revelation 12:14, which says that the woman who represents the believing remnant of Israel will flee into the desert to a place prepared for them during the Great Tribulation. The closest desert hiding place is Petra. And the third verse that they use in support is Isaiah 63:1, where the Lord is shown coming from Basra, the region where Petra is located, having defeated his enemies there. Now, many scholars believe that he will do this just prior to arriving at Jerusalem in the second coming. I don't know for sure. I don't know that anybody truly does, although there are good arguments both ways. Verse 21. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. This is referring to, just real quickly, the millennium. It's referring to a time again when there's going to be judges in Israel, just like there were judges in the book of Judges. And those judges are going to be the faithful uh, who served God. So during the millennium, there are going to be judges or people who decide cases throughout the world and including Israel. And that's really what this is referring to in a general sense. Um, And I don't want to get too far into it. But in conclusion, those three questions I said earlier, are the three questions we need to try to ask ourselves every day is, do I give God credit for my salvation? Do I live with a spirit of humble gratitude? Seeing I have received from God, what can I give to God? And we need to make sure that 
pride doesn't destroy the relationships in our lives or our witness. If we see a need, we need to fill it. If we see injustice, we need to step in. We need to make sure that as Christians, we're setting the example as people of faith who trust in the living God, that we never rejoice in the troubles of others, that we are always humble in our own sight, that we show all humility to others, that we never take advantage of others. No, of course, if we sin, we're covered by his mercy and his grace, but we want to make sure we don't fall into Edom's trap. With that, let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege we have of studying it freely right now. I pray that we'd be able to apply what we learn. Lord, help us to be humble in our own sight. Help us to always look to others as lost so that we can draw them to you, Lord, never as better than them. Fill our heart this week with worship for you. And may we live with a spirit of expectancy that you may come any day and make our lives match that. In Jesus' name, amen.